Thank you for tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast, brought to you by a student staff partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host, Kyra, and for this episode, I'll be in conversation with Dibyesh Anand. Dibyesh is head of the Department of Politics and International Relations at Westminster and a respected scholar for his research on topics including politics and international relations on Tibetans under Chinese rule, Islamophobia in India, the politics of security and representation, the emergence of China and India as major non-Western powers and the contested nature of nation-state formations in Asia. In this interview, I have the opportunity to discuss Dibyesh's most recent work, as well as how we might begin to decolonize the discipline of international relations. Hi, Dibyesh. Thank you so much for being here. I've been really looking forward to having you on the podcast. And how is the start of your week going? Hi, thank you for having me here. It's fine. It's busy because uh, we are shortlisting for different lectureship posts in criminology and psychology. It started with that. So we are looking to recruit new colleagues, right? That's what it is. And where, I mean, where it's relevant for the kind of discussion you're going to have is our advertisements are very clear that we want to diversify our staff body, you know, because one of the demands made by students is that they don't see themselves amongst academics. There's a big disconnect between students and academics. We talk of diversity, but there's a disconnect. So we're trying to change that. But I can't tell you how difficult it is. <laughs> because imagine. even though for instance, we are saying look we are interested in diversifying you must whoever applies should be have some commitment to equality diversity inclusion some colleagues have and some applicants don't seem to bother mm. with EDI because for them EDI is something that's not what they do yeah which tells us about the privileges that they might inhabit no maybe but that's how it is so I like to start off the podcast with the guests telling us a little bit about themselves. So first things first, where are you from? So um, my full name is Dibyesh Anand. So it's, I'm Professor Dibyesh Anand. Uh, my origin would be India and Nepal. So my mother was part Indian, part Nepalese. She could never decide because she came from the borderland, which was neither India nor, uh, which was both basically. So for her, it was the borderland. But in reality, she would have been Nepalese. And my father came from, again, borderland, but from Indian side. So India and Nepal. I grew up in what's Eastern India, different provinces of Eastern India. I had my early education there. Then I came to the UK in 1997 for my master's. I got a full scholarship. So I came to the UK. Otherwise, I had no interest in coming to the UK, frankly. Right? Uh, not right. I didn't have... <laughs> came for master's, but I really enjoyed it. Education was amazing. I carried on with my PhD from the University of Bristol and then got a job at Bath University, so I moved there. And then from there, I moved to Westminster. So my background would be Indian, broadly speaking. I said broadly, with Nepal also in Nepalese and Indian. Uh, and I'm here for last, how many years? 24 years. Wow. And what is your kind of role here at Westminster? Uh, so officially, because that's my role is as head of school of social sciences. So university has 12 schools and one of the largest schools, if not the largest school is school of social sciences. And I'm the head of school of social sciences for the last three years. In addition, I'm professor of international relations. This is my, these are my official roles, right? The way I see is apart from these roles, I mean, I'm also co-chair of uh, university's black and minority ethnic staff network. 
we no longer call it star but a colleague network and i'm also co-chair of university edi equality diversity inclusion committee the way i see myself is not in terms of only these roles i see myself as a public intellectual a lifelong learner someone who is fits in as much within activism as much as in academia that's how i see myself amazing and what would you say has been the kind of highlight of your career as both a respected academic and scholar and obviously in all these other roles that you clearly play as well now in terms of institutionally institutionally my highlight would be where people would so let's say how others would see me right but they would see me as uh, one of the only non white i'm using the word non white rather than bme or uh, indian or whatever right so non white one of the rare non white heads of schools slash departments in the country that's how what would be the highlight uh, highlight could be potentially in my case also becoming a professor before i had set my goal at age of 40 so before age of 40 so professor of international relations so highlight uh within university i think my highlight could be seen as the fact that i was elected as a governor by academics so i'm the governor of the i'm one of the governors of the university the only elected one right last year i'm university governor i'd be seen in terms of being not only head of school but also in university committees like edi but for me the highlight would be the kind of recognition i get from a work particularly around tibet and china where my work on tibet is in terms of uh, being seen as someone who is emphasizing on the colonial nature of chinese rule rather than anything else so for me actually i'd be one of the prominent intellectual voices that argues that we should not see china as simply another uh, military occupier or as someone who owns tibet but china as a colonial power and your last body of work explored the securitization as a feature of the modern chinese colonization of xinjiang and tibet and anyone active on social media will be aware of you know the monstrosities that are currently going on in china and also how they are very much being kind of ignored and swept under the carpet but this is a country that has been the focus of your research for over 10 years so to begin with what kind of drove you to explore this particular area of research and have that specifically kind of post colonial approach now i started my okay, 1997 when i came to the uk for my masters i had very little idea about tibet and china to be honest i had done history in india just from particular university but not really known much about china the colonial power because growing up in a post colonial countries we know of a post colonial country like india china being the victims of colonization rather than practically right that's how it came but when it came to the uk i saw a lot of interest here in the not in academia but amongst pop, uh, amongst public and including hollywood in tibet there was an exoticization of tibet so tibetans being you know just nice people who are brutalized by chinese communist party kind of thing so i was very curious why so much of interest in tibet here in the west but not in india where i realized and found out that the tibetans live exiled tibetans live in india most of them and the dalai lama was the leader of tibetans people lives in india but i didn't know much about it so for me it started with almost a frustration and anger with myself with my lack of knowledge and the heart how it started so i started my my phd was on western imagination of tibet western exoticization of tibet and i looked at so through his work of history work of post coloniality work of uh, literature you know all of that and politics i understood and argued that and that's broadly my phd and that's the subject of my first book 
geopolitical exotica tibetan western imagination i argue that while western imagination exoticization of tibet helped tibetans to gain some recognition for the struggle in the end the main beneficiary was china because by portraying tibetans as this otherworldly exotic religious people they took away the struggle of tibetans for right to self determination political self-determination, and made tibetans into some kind of panda bear kind of exotic people who are not almost on verge of extinction you see so who that's one part second part was the tibetans are forced to be non violent forced to be a political as much as possible and why did china benefit from it because it was the british and the europeans who introduced modern ideas of sovereignty and independence so they said china has suzerainty over tibet now why did they say china has suzerainty and that's something i've worked on in the past one of the articles in journal of asian studies argued how the british wanted to like of any typical imperial power they didn't want to offend china but they wanted to deal with tibet right so what they did was they converted historic relation between china and tibet which was based on patron priest relation so tibetans are priests and chinese were chinese emperor were the patrons not any modern relation right so british saw that uh, converted that into suzerainty autonomy not sovereignty and autonomy why did they do it because by that they could say to china we are not dealing with you but we will deal with tibet on our own so basically the british role in the region was quite detrimental to taking away again tibetan independence and who benefited from that modernization china china was one of the first countries in the region that region to modernize before tibetans did the china said no we are not suzerain we are sovereign and as soon as prc was formed people's republic of china they asserted that they will liberate tibet and you have to ask liberate from whom if tibet was always part of china which is the chinese claim then you can't liberate your own people from yourself or somewhere else but chinese communist party has been very good at playing that double game and what they did say is we are going to liberate tibetans and make them into a communist utopia they occupy tibet they tried to compromise with dalai lama for seven well eight years it didn't work out dalai lama came into exile so all of that was part and parcel of my research right it started with the interest in western imagination then he started looking at chinese nature of chinese state and in last 10 years which is almost 22 years of research but last 12 years more i looked at china i recognized and then argued that china cannot be seen as anything other than a formal colonial power not former but formal colonial power so china is an occupying force so the article you mentioned i looked at the ways in which both uighur muslims and tibetan buddhists are securitized as dangerous separatists and terrorists and extremists and the land of tibetans and uighurs so what's called xinjiang east turkestan and tibet is occupied by china on the grounds that these are people you can't trust the land belongs to us people if they don't want it that's too bad so people are securitized while land is occupied so why do you feel like there's this kind of lack in western post colonial scholarship on this topic Uh, west post colonial theory post colonial studies of which i would also be a student emerged largely in terms of a frustration with western liberalism which portrayed empire as partly not so good but partly good and there was the whole idea that in the end those who ruled the non west the east and wherever right they were not bad people yes some of them were bad they killed you know they murdered they raped they pillaged whatever but they were not bad because, you know they were really interested in that so edward sayer work and others they were largely about west non west 
Franz Fanon, Amy Sither, Amy Sither, all of them, they have worked on West-Non-West relations. The right? so post-colon study, if you look at it, 80s, 90s, 2000s, is largely about the impact the West had on the non-West and the impact non-West had on the West, right? West-Non-West relations. And when non-West is studied, non-Western places and people, they're studied largely in terms of being victims or collaborators of Western ideas. There's hardly anything on non-Western elite being themselves not collaborators, but practitioners of empires. So my frustration with personal theory, I'm part of it, but was that if we are driven by ideas of empowering ideas of challenging coloniality, why assume that coloniality is something only Western and something that white people can do. And I would argue, and I've argued in one of my articles that it's very patronizing that we assume that Chinese, Indian, Turks, and Iranians, and you know, Nigerians can't be originally or originally uh, colonialist themselves when given up. So that's what they are doing. So rather than see, so for instance, if you take example of empire in China or imperialism in China, all the works about China's victims of empire, uh, a victim of empires. China's victims of imperialism. Now, part of it is, of course, the dominance of left scholarship, of which I'm also a part of it, right? Left scholarship that sees West as a problem, even though we are Westerners, right? I'm also Westerner, but we see West as the source of empire, West as capitalist, imperialist, but we are often driven by this myopic vision where we refuse to see, let's say in this case, China, I also work on India, right? As also colonial. Until we can somehow show that China is only colonial because it's somehow influenced by the West. The fact of the matter is, China is colonial vis-a-vis Uyghurs and Tibetans before it became capitalist. Today, China is communist capitalist, both, right? Communist system, political system, and capitalist in economy. But the fact of the matter is, China was colonial vis-a-vis Tibetans and Uyghurs even in 1950s, 60s when it was communist. So this notion that somehow imperialism is only capitalism is a very highly reductionist understanding of empire. And this is where my rage against limitations of personal theory comes because what it does is by focusing on West, non-West, and let's say, I'm, I don't know about your background, but me, so somehow a personal theory which should be about me having a victimized identity and being here in the West, like somehow relation between me and this as an Indian versus the West, but ignoring the fact that I, as a cis male, someone with a Brahminical background in India, inhabit all kinds of privileges which many white people here cannot. Postal theory, in a way, by emphasizing West, non-West, ignores the injustices that go on in the non-West. I wanted to also discuss a point that you make quite early on in the paper, actually. You say that to study Uyghurs and Tibetans living under Chinese control as ethnic or national minorities, as many scholars do, is to accept the terms of debate set by the Chinese state. And this is something that I find myself having a lot of conversations about in project meetings. And it's this idea that we need to be extremely cautious of the way we kind of perceive and discuss the groups that we study and analyze. Otherwise we fall into this kind of trap of reinforcing coloniality. And, you know, like you say, the same could go for whether we observe China as a colon- as a victim of, colonize- of colonialism or as a colonial force. So my question is, 
do you feel like representational or discursive acts of colonialism are just as important as the kind of physical and conventional acts of colonialism? Again, very important question. We'll be on the same page here. So my entire work has largely been about politics of representation. So I've looked at the way representations shape identities and realities. Yeah. Right? Now, so in my earlier work, it was a representation of Tibetan China in the West, and it became a representative of Tibetans and Uyghurs in China. And I've also worked on representing Muslims in India and Islamophobia and the ways in which that leads to securitization of Muslim identity and use of violence. Broadly, if I have to pick three terms that are related to my research and my research in the last 20, 25 years, it would be around representation, identity, and violence. Yeah. It's by representing certain identities as good and others as bad that the good ones then commit violence against the bad. Mm-hmm. The stereotypes are connected. So in this case also, uh, for instance, there's, there's some work on China and Tibet and on Uyghur. We say that yeah, at Xinjiang is Turkestan and Tibet is internal, internal colony of China. Mm-hmm. It is it's internal colonialism. But again, internal colonialism is only internal if you accept broadly China as a legitimate power. But from Tibetan perspective or Uyghur perspective, or most of them, it's an external colonialism that's occupying them. Mm. So we have to bear in mind that whose ideas do we value? So imagine a situation where, uh, and, um, it's an easy, okay, I know it's a crude example, but a relatively easy example, domestic violence in a heterosexual context, mm. right? And domestic violence where, let's say, the uh, husband wife, a husband is the brutal violent one and the wife is a victim, right? Now, one could say, oh, well, we shouldn't interfere, it's their affairs. We know that's the kind of argument used. We should not interfere in family. But we know we have passed that. We know that it's violent. Now, should we listen to the victim or should we listen to the victimizer? Should we value their perspective equally? Mm. Where the, the male says, she asked for it. But she's rude. She doesn't cook on time. She doesn't you know, feed me on time. Therefore, I have the right as a male because whatever my God says so or my culture says so, this is how I've been brought up. Now, one could say both have different views. Should we value both views equally or should we prioritize the views of those who are victimized? Mm. My politics would be, we value the words of those who are victimized. That's simple in individual context. If that's the case, then in case of empires, why not value the views of those who are victimized more than the values of those who are victimized? And in that, when you look at that, we have to value that basically Uyghurs and Tibetans See, this is largely China as a colonial power, and we need to acknowledge. The challenge we find in the West, of course, is the causes of Tibetans and Uyghurs are sometimes hijacked by the far right here, with the anti-communists, so they want to use it against China, which is not healthy, but I'd ra- but what the way I would say, and I, I would identify broadly as right, identify as left. But for me, the rage is not against that far right for abusing uh, or misusing Tibetan or Uyghur cause against China. My rage is against the left. Why are we silent about it? Just because right-wing appropriates certain causes, does it mean we need to distance from it? Because ultimately, it's a failure of the progressives and the left in the West and in other parts of the world to recognize the injustice and speak in solidarity with those who are victimized by, in this case, the Chinese colonial state. The way we speak in solidarity with those victimized by the British state or the American state. Why have these double standards where those victimized by us is somehow bad? No, we have to speak against it, but those victimized by China or India, we should not speak against it. I don't understand that uh, hypocrisy. Yeah. 
And I feel like this also talk, ties into kind of when this concept of like paternalistic control, which I found really interesting. Could you maybe speak more about the significance of that to the securitization of everyday life in those regions? Thank you. And I realized that you asked me a representation and I distracted myself from answering to you. Yes, representation and all of this. So we have to understand that all empires are about violence, but violence is one of the many ways in which one governs the other. The key way in which you govern is through mind, control of mind and control of common sense. So if you look at, let's say, European empires in Africa, Asia, they rule through the idea that Europeans have the civilizing mission, the superior, the better equipped because they're better human beings around race, ethnicity, whatever, and empire and they can govern. And the others are either savages who need to be controlled or savages who can be converted into civilized beings through education over a long period of time, which is paternalism. That has been the long story of empire. So when you look at how China governs Uyghurs and Tibetans, China's, we start with the language of liberation. Right? But who gives the right to Chinese Communist Party to liberate Tibetans? Mm. This whole idea that we are here to liberate you, even if you don't want liberation, is imperial idea. Now, what China does is what China did and what empires do, including India and Kashmir in this context, what China did is said, okay, Tibetans are nice, happy, backward, feudal people. China is a modernizing state. So we need to, and same with Uyghurs. Uyghurs are backward, extremist, excessively religious. So what we need, of course, is China is a modernizing force that will educate Uyghurs and Tibetans to be modern. They'll, it will educate them to be more efficient. They'll educate them to be better workers. They'll educate them to be more moderate, not extremist, according to them. Mm. So education is connected to paternalism. Because education is not meant to empower, it's meant to domesticate. It's meant to exoticize certain aspects of culture and crush other aspects of culture, which are more, uh, which don't fit into the narrative. And in all of that, what China does, China is a country of 56 nationalities, what they call ethnicities, nationalities. One is Han, the majority, 92%, the rest are minorities. If you look at Chinese government programs, and I've got all the tech books in, my, well, in the shelves here, but not that it's a podcast, but I've got it in shelves, you'll find minorities are always colorful, singing and uh, dancing happy people. Minorities never cry, minorities never do anything equal to Mahan. So it's always the Han who have the upper hand. Something similar to the idea of development that often white Westerners take to for Africa, mm. which is that we are there to help them. We sing and dance, we eat with them, you know, but we are there to help them. Now, what if they don't want to be helped? Too bad, we'll still help them. Mm. That paternalism therefore is at the heart of justifying the whole endeavor of empire. We have to understand that most people in China don't see the state as negative in vis-a-vis Uyghurs and Tibetans. In fact, they think that, and they believe that, the Chinese state is favoring Tibetans and Uyghurs in various ways and helping them. So this whole idea of help is connected to paternalism. And that idea of, uh, is connected to the whole representation of Tibetans as excessively religious. Uh, Uyghurs are also excessively religious and cultural and exotic and all of that. And erotic also, by the way, there's an eroticization, there's a sexualization. In my own work, I've looked at all kinds of strategies of representation of the other, which then justifies self as a progressive modernizing self and that's what's happening in case of China also. So in your opinion 
And I guess in the grand scheme of things, what does a post-colonial way of being kind of fully entail? And this question can be answered more generally, if you wish. A post-colonial way of being would be one that's a constant, based on constant self-reflection. Self-reflection is the heart of post-colonial way of being. It's not an end product, it's a process. So post-coloniality for me, therefore, is a process. Post-coloniality is a process of constantly questioning oneself and questioning the others. It is about acknowledging the close link between knowledge and power. It's also about acknowledging the connection between coloniality, the asymmetrical way of governance, coloniality, and dehumanization, the ways in which through representations, sometimes positive but often negative, other people get dehumanized. For me, therefore, post-colonialism is about recognizing the role of representation, recognizing the role of discourses, recognizing the role of dehumanization, recognizing that power and knowledge in asymmetrical forms take place in all parts of the world. It is about constant questioning of those who hold power and solidarity with those who are occupied and marginalized and dehumanized while acknowledging that these powers and you know dehumanization are also intersectional. It's not therefore that Tibetans are always victimized. They are victimized by Chinese state, but within Tibet also there's other forms of victimization within around gender sexuality lines and the same with Uyghurs. So what would you, I guess, like to see more of in this kind of area of research, maybe tie into more kind of having an intersectional approach? So having more intersectional approach. So for instance, uh, in my own uh, module, which I teach post-colonial politics, uh, politics and international relations, right? People assume that it's about post-colonial politics, therefore race, maybe, and empire. Yes, it is. It's also gender and sexuality. For me, it's very important that when we look at post-coloniality, coloniality, empire, we also look at you know, other forms of identity politics. And the other way around. So intersectionality is at the heart of it, while acknowledging that intersectionality should not become an excuse to uh, take away the peculiarities of oppression. For instance, I identify as queer in personal and political terms, right? So if I say that, no, when we talk of Black Lives Matter, we should also talk of queer lives matter, right? We should also talk of, uh, let's say in this case, uh, uh, women's lives matters, both cis and trans women's lives matter, great. But we should not use one against the other. So we should not say, oh, BLM are not legitimate because it doesn't always talk of LGBTQ or somehow that queer movement is illegitimate because it doesn't talk of black. Because what we find with constant questioning of only those who are struggling, it around gendered, uh, sexualized, or racialized ethnic lines, is that the center of power in our context, the straight white male, Chinese context, the straight Han male. In Indian context, uh, Brahminical uh, straight male, right? In all these contexts, that's different. So straight white male doesn't work throughout the world. That's not how it functions, right? But in this context, is the one then who that mediates between all forms of oppression. Said, okay, this time, let me choose you. You're a woman. Let me choose your queer. Let me choose your cause. We don't want that. So for me, therefore, post-colonial is about intersectionality. But post-colonial is also about recognizing that you know, in decolonial theory and de-personal studies, you have this discussion around decolonization is different from diversification. This whole debate around it. That, oh, we don't want diversity, we want decolonial, uh, anti-colonial, decoloniality. For me, it's not either or. Because what, what if the movement for decolonization in the West, in the UK universities, gets dominated by straight white women and straight white men? They can, right? They can be very questioning, they can challenge. Good, good that they do it. 
And they say, well, we don't need brown and black people because we are doing better decoloniality than brown and black people. So now the other way around is also, we just don't want diversity. Because diversity can also be Preeti Patel or Kami Badenoch kind of phenomenon. But you know, you have got, uh, I would say, token brown and black people who fit into the agenda of the white establishment and conform to it. So you see, someone like myself then becomes quite, uh, while I try to queer academia and queer thinking and queer politics, it becomes a lonely process because on the one hand, I have some disquiet with those who only talk of decolonization. And those who only talk about diversity. This is why I mean, within our own university, and I've been part of it, of course, that movement is, we talk of decolonization and diversification both. I guess this ties into kind of my next topic that I wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, you have most modern disciplines have disciplinary practices and use literature and interpretations that are rooted in colonialism. So I wanted to dedicate this time to discussing what it means to kind of decolonize international relations. And I guess what can be done to make that a possible future. And I'd love to kind of hear your take on this. So in what ways is the study IR of IR still very much kind of colonial? Again, thanks for this. IR is very closely connected. One of the first disciplines of IR was Journal of Race Development. That was the first journal of international, the Journal of Race Development. You see, so at the heart of IR lies the idea of race. Mm. And race development was not how to develop white race, by the way. It was to how to develop the undeveloped races, which you know is a non-white race. Yeah. This is 100 years ago, 110 years ago. But that journal then became re was renamed. So see, there was a clear civilizing mission in IR. But that journal got renamed as a national interest for foreign affairs over time. And there has been a conscious erasure within IR as a discipline of its own complicity with racism and empires. Mm. So most students of IR would think that IR's origin is in terms of great wars between European states, practically US and Japan and European states, First World War, Second World War, realism, liberalism, these debates. So if you ask, but where did empire fit in? They said, no, no that's not relevant. It's about in strong, powerful, independent states. Mm. But at the heart of the matter of IR lies how to civilize the rest of the world. So we thought, so for me, therefore, decolonizing IR would involve acknowledging the roots of international relations and it's complete with the project of empire. Yeah. Then looking at the ways in which that history of empire and imperialism and complicity got, got erased and written over and why and who benefited from it. And third, what are the terms on which non-West becomes part of IR? Two ways. As a playground for the West, and West includes Russia, Soviet Union, by the way, mm. right? Playground for it. So, you know, Cold War playground. Or as those that conform to the West. Now, by today, you may say, but you know, what about rise of China in particular, and even India? They're not Western powers, and I've been arguing they're non-Western powers, in fact. I would argue that China is even more Western than West. Western countries, because if you look at the ideas of Western IR that included sovereignty, statehood, non-interference, but the heart of the idea of international relations lies the idea that the state is sovereign over its own affairs and no one should interfere. Mm. That's Westphalian notion of sovereignty. Today, 
US practices it, European states have modified it. It's China and India both, they're the practitioner of it, saying don't interfere in our internal affairs. Mm. So they are already westernized. While they're not Western, they're westernized. Yeah. I think we need to acknowledge that part. For me, therefore, decoloniality is not about acknowledging the decline of the West rise of the non-Western powers, but recognizing the constitutive role that Western notions of sovereignty and statehood and nationalism, because also it's a Western notion of nationalism, played through its universalization, mm. through colonialism and decolonization. Because the decolonization that took place in the world is not decolonial. Decolonization is essentially becoming more of the same. Yeah. So China is like France, India is like the UK, mm. and that's what's happening. So for me, therefore, decoloniality is about acknowledging the constant process through which sections of population get represented as backward, they're domesticated, they're occupied, they're colonized, and therefore we need to acknowledge the ways in which not only the relation between the states, but relations within the states perpetuate inequalities Unfreedom, for lack of freedom, so unfreedom, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's a word or not, unfreedom and uh, dehumanization. So linking to kind of, I guess, pedagogy in general, you know, aside from kind of the general things that I think a lot of lecturers do, like diversifying their reading lists and changing the modules that they offer, how else should IR lecturers kind of begin to decolonize their pedagogy? For me, again, there's no manual, so we don't know what exactly would work, right? That's one. It's a constant questioning of oneself and students. It's not about responding to students, it's about engaging with them. But the way one or two things look at reading this is crucial. But for me, it's not only about getting more non-white names, but also look at gender. Sexuality might be more difficult to understand, but gender, because we, look like, we might see that in cross-decolonization, we still end up being largely male-dominated in terms of the textbooks, right? And that has to be challenged. I would understand is use examples from different parts of the world. Make oneself myself uncomfortable, make you, let's say you are student, ma'am, uh, your lecturer, make ourselves uncomfortable. You bring examples, I'm making it up from Antarctica. I bring examples from Brazil. I don't know much about Brazil. You may not know about Antarctica, but let's do it. See how it functions. So rather than using typical example in Europe or certain non-European countries, try to expand. That helps. Uh, it's also about encouraging students, right? because students are amazing resources, encouraging students to bring examples from other parts of the world. Think of how certain ideas play in their part of the world, if they identify different. Or in, I always say their part of the world or a part of the world they are interested in. You might be interested, I said Antarctica, right? So it's fine. Think of uh, the idea of, uh, I don't know, sexuality in terms of Antarctica is difficult, but in Antarctica or Australia, do it. So it's largely an experimental way of learning and teaching. That helps. It's about being aware of what movement takes place outside in the outside world. It's also important. Uh, it's by engaging. So in my case, I engage a lot with developments in IR. And IR's main body in the world is International Studies Association. ISA is the main profit body. And I'm on the committee of some kind of EDI related committee of ISA. I say EDI with some other name. And you know, in largely it's North American dominant. You can imagine it's people of color is the term that's used, not uh, something else. Some part of that. So I also engage with developments taking place in other parts of the world. And I try to bring in from knowledge again from there into here. So broadly, what I would encourage academics to do is 
acknowledge our own positionality, our own limitations, learn from others, and realize that as academics, our role is not to impart knowledge, but is to co-produce knowledge with students and others. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point that you make. And it's actually something that we've discussed a lot about with the project. You know, it's about partnership and collaborating and learning and co-producing with each other. So I'm happy that you've actually said that. I think in my case, for instance, uh, no, in university context, we talk of co-production students usually, right? But in my case, it's largely co-producing with other academics, but outside the UK. I have more networks outside the UK than in the UK. For various reasons, because of my research. So I have a certain research profile. So I have interactions. So I know about development in Finland in terms of you know, the, uh, the first world, the fourth world, in terms of Canada. The, you know, so for me, it's important to keep that connection because then I can bring that shape. Yeah, I agree. And I think this ties really well into my final question for you, which is what is something you'd like to kind of see happen or see develop within higher education in the next 10 years? Uh, for, uh, for me, so many things I would like to remember, but if I had to pick up one, it is the idea of education as insurrectional. Mm. Insurrection is challenging, right? Now I'm talking insurrection. You can imagine in another context that can be seen as sedition. That you can't have insurrection knowledge, you should have a knowledge that is largely conforming. So you have a government, we have a government that's very clear. It's not only a neoliberal government, it's a right-wing neoliberal government. Mm of a kind that wants to turn education into not something that's empowering, but education that converts all students and academics into disciplined workers for the machinery. Yeah. Right? That's how it is. For me, in the next 10 years, it's not, we can idealize and decolonize diversified education system. That's going to be a process, never going to be an end process, end result, right? It's a process. For me, it is something where we acknowledge the role of education and university, higher education in particular, to fight against these trends in society. See, so I'm not talking about trends in education, I'm talking about trends in society. What I found, and it's a disappointing thing, what I found is universities in the UK are all very weak. Government says something, media will say something that, oh, universities are pampered a lot, academics don't teach much, you know, what writing media and to an extent liberal media also. As well as government is good at is portraying student versus academics, mm. right? It's about you versus. Yeah. Think that, oh, you get value for education, and then you ask for value for education. But value for education for you would be something that's a very neoliberal term and job skills. And then I'll be told, you know, you need to produce uh, students who are employable, right? Mm. That's to an extent, I understand it's important to do it. But it's equally important, if not more important to acknowledge and partner with students in terms of, in addition to skills that are, can make you more employable and all of that that's important and internationalize is challenging the system. Yeah. Because if higher education doesn't challenge, who else will challenge? And therefore, higher education, I, I can tell you, I've been part of the university structure high, you know, at higher level at the university, interact with other universities and leaders. I'm quite disappointed broadly. Our university is much better than many other universities. I'm disappointed at almost, how to say, passive approach of universities, including academics and many students, but academics mm -hmm. are put more authority because they have at least security of job and you know, you're looking for a job and everything. Academics in terms of being passive when the government says something, they might at most tweet about it, maybe write a paper about it, but there's no mobilization against it. 
for me, the next 10 years should be one where we mobilize as academic students, universities, uh, not only punch whatever our weight is, but punch above our weight, because we need to do that. If we don't do it, we are finished. Thank you, Vibyash. I can't thank you enough, you know, for joining me on this episode of the podcast. You shared some really insightful knowledge on China as a colonial force. And I definitely recommend everyone go and read your article on this. And hopefully, you know, in the next 10 years, we can see this kind of shift in the neoliberal culture that characterizes the university and we can see more mobilization and academics challenging this. So yeah, thank you so much for it. And even who wants to follow me on Twitter or Facebook, Dibyesh Anand whatever it's easy i write a lot i'm in there but i express my ideas more there now in academic terms anyway thank you so much kaira for this amazing work best of luck to you thank you so much see you soon to find out more information access our tools or get in touch visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash psj